Hello, everybody. I believe it's up. I believe we're going. Uh, this is episode. Yeah, here we go. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas. This is episode three of the Mon Monday Morning Analyst, um, where we just break down events from the weekend and tell you who did well, who did poorly, and why. Um, this week on this episode, we will talk about UFC on Fox, uh, let's see, uh, 13. We'll talk about the Ultimate Fighter 20 finale, a little bit of World Series of Fighting 16, uh, and then brief mentions of three boxing events from the weekend. Follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, and of course, uh, you can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. If you're wondering if I'm in a hotel room, the answer is yes, long story. Uh, all right. Let's go down and break the uh, boxing events down first. I will just very briefly talk about these because I know a lot of you don't care. Uh, on Friday night, Ishe Smith taking on Eris Landy Lara. Ishe Smith, uh, you might remember him from um, the main card from the Mayweather versus Canelo event. Uh, uh, Well-respected Las Vegas guy. Dana White actually likes him a lot as well. Um, he did not beat Erislandi Lara. Lara, I think, won via unanimous decision. I don't have his uh, – Christ, I don't have his um, – scorecards in front of me but laurie laurie or lara you might remember he's the cuban guy who uh a number of important fights not least of which was the canelo fight canelo alvarez where um it was controversy over who had won i scored the fight for laura in that particular case but understand why uh, canelo scorecard is defensible anyway i am told that this fight was incredibly boring with isha smith so i did not see it i won't pretend that i didn't but i at least thought it would deserve some mention if you in case you were interested um the other big boxing event the one i did watch at least part of amir khan taking on devin alexander uh, amir khan looked incredible you know i remember when he came to the um uh when he came to dc to fight lamont peterson it was a junior welterweight bout, bout. And he said if he got past peterson really there's nothing left for him a junior welterweight he had to move up to 147 pounds and i think people scoffed at that a lot you know he lost to danny garcia after losing to peterson however controversial you think the peterson score was but be that as it may um, he looked good at 147, man. He really did, you know. Uh, fast hands, um, um, great combinations. Never Alexander had low output, low accuracy. Um, good movement from from Khan. You know, obviously he has new 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 instruction and new training. And God, you can really see it, man. He looked he looked great. You know, um, I don't know that his chin issues have been resolved. I know that you can resolve them, but they didn't play a factor here. This was this was the Amir Khan show. You could give him every round if you wanted to. And I believe he took. On at least one judge's scorecard, I believe he took. Let me see. Uh, I believe he took that. I think he's at least on one judge's scorecards. He had a one twenty score. I'll pull it up real quick, like here on the internet's, uh, and then I'll just move on to the last boxing event, and then we'll, we'll be done with this. And I'll move right into uh, the things you actually want to talk about. Uh, let's see. There we go. Khan dominates Alexander, makes case for Floyd. This is from Bad Left Hook, which is SB Nation's boxing blog. Um, yeah, here we go. Here are the scores. 118-110, 119-109, and 120-108. Uh, and, of course, he improved to 7-0 against Southpaws in his career. Bad Left Hook had a 120-108 for Khan. Really, really strong performance from your Khan in this one. Um, check it out if you can. That was on Showtime. Uh, and then last but certainly not least, and I believe uh, Lara versus Smith was on Showtime as well, although again on Friday night. Last not least, um, Timothy Bradley took on Diego Chavez. Now, I did not see this fight, but I remember on Saturday night, Kevin Ioli going bonkers over this fight about uh, how poor the decision was in terms of the judging that Bradley had been badly screwed. Um, so Timothy Bradley and Diego Chavez went to a split draw, which means 116, 112, 115, 113, and 114, 114. One judge scored it for Bradley, one judge scored it for 
um, Chavez, and then one had a dead even, so no one really wins. Um, I am told that Bradley won this fight handily, that this is something of a robbery. And again, I, I wrote about this in Signal to Noise previously, that we use this word robbery every time we feel like something is unjust. But if you really point to um, the number of decisions in any real combat sport where it was just it just strained credulity or um, you know, only a, a major consensus of people would agree is grossly unfair. It's not many fights we're talking about. Whether or not this fits into that, I don't know. But um, Ioli, who's boxing reporting I respect, seemed incensed. So follow up with him on that. All right, so that's enough of the boxing. I just wanted to touch on it briefly if I could. Let's move into, um, um, if we can, close up my Miracon thing here. Let's move into the first MMA event of the weekend, um, and that would be, of course, the Ultimate Fighter 20 finale. Um, this was at the Pearl at the Palms, which is off the strip in Vegas, but nevertheless a nice place for the most part. Um, it did an okay gate. Uh, it's a smaller venue. Only did 1,800 in attendance and 143,000 at the gate. I would give this event, you know, a solid six or seven, you know. And that may sound low, but when you think about what it requires to get a 10 in mixed martial arts in terms of, like, you know, any sort of independent personal scale, um, takes a lot, you know, unless you have really low standards, I guess. Um, uh, six or seven, I would, that's a strong rating. You know, you can't get that high when there's not that much on the line. And, of course, it was for that one weight class, but it's a burgeoning weight class, and the rest of the car was pretty thin. It was on Friday night for a reason. It was at the Pearl at the Palms for a reason. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a good event. I, I, I'm not disparaging it in any way. And, and I'm going to start doing these for all these MMA cards. And if it's a big boxing card, I'll do it for that as well. But I'm going to start doing an FOTC, fighter of the card. Who was the best fighter on the card? Now, maybe not, they're not the best fighter in terms of where they're ranked, but who on that night showed up? Again, you know, we, we, we talk about peaking in mixed martial arts, which is true in, in such an important capacity for the athlete. It's about, you know, building to something. And this, you saw this um, in a lot of their performances, right? Like, they, like a lot, of, and I'll go through these, who, who won or who lost her in just a moment, but there was a pretty big gap between what you saw on the show and then what you saw on Friday night. Um, in terms of their developmental growth, and it's because peaking is such a tremendously important concept. Um, so, and, and if you're on these tournament-based shows and reality shows, you know you have to fight two, three times before you are um, in such a short amount of time. It's not optimal for uh, performance for most people. In any event, but I want to start doing a fighter of the card. Like, who was the best fighter on the card? And I'll get to her fight later, but for me, it was Carla Esparza. It really was the one who stood out to me and just showed me a lot in this particular case. We'll get to her fight in a minute. Opening up, Angela Hill defeated Emily Kagan by unanimous decision, 30-26, 30-26, and 30-27. Um, Angela Hill looked fantastic. Again, you could tell there was a certain um, lack of finesse in terms of developing finishing sequences or knowing how to put Kagan away. But this was a beating basically for three rounds. You could argue that the third round wasn't even necessary. Um, Kagan just really had no answers for the physicality of Hill. Um, some of the things you could tell Hill was really good at, turning in the clinch, scoring points in the clinch. Um, it, it, she was faster. She was uh, uh, getting off first in a lot of cases, even when Kagan would be closing the distance. So uh, a, a strong performance by Hill. Again, a green performance by Hill. It's sort of, you know, be fair about what we are and we aren't seeing, but you can tell with some, you know, rehearsal, with some development, with some time spent training, she's going to be able to round out those problem areas in terms of putting someone away because, um, you know, a, a more seasoned opponent, or I should say a more seasoned fighter, um, would have been able to do that thing with a fair amount of ease. 
But again, all credit to Angela Hill. Very strong performance. Uh, Ashling Daly defeated Alex Chambers by armbar in the first round um, at four minutes and 53 seconds. Great performance by Daly. You know, she missed weight, came in at 118 at the weigh-ins. She turned it around big time against Alex Chambers. Um, I was really impressed with her jiu-jitsu for as unorthodox and herky. I always use this description. It's cliche at this point, but herky-jerky. Um, her stand-up is and sort of awkward and the weird things she throws. Her jiu-jitsu is pretty straightforward. Technical, strong, good, but not crazy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I was really impressed with the finishing sequence where she had to sit, basically, on Chambers for a moment. And it's a really delicate thing because you have to balance yourself. You have to keep everything tight. You don't want to lose the arm. And she did everything. Her, the finishing sequence on that by Daly was very impressive. Um, you could tell she had a lot of experience doing that, and it came naturally to her. Um, and then she was able to put Chambers away with a, with a fair amount of ease. So a, a great performance by Daly. Chambers might not make it in the UFC uh, for very much longer, if at all, but um, was a worthwhile competitor on the on the, on the show. Uh, Tisha Torres taking on a- a- Angela Magana. Torres, another one of these people like Hill, you know, she had a lot of hype behind her and with good reason, but I f- just feel like um, some of the division may have caught up from a technical standpoint. So she's still ahead in terms of physicality. She's still ahead in terms of, um, you know, making that physicality work. Um, she's, you know, she's not just strong in some sort of like abstract way. Like she has good takedowns. She's strong in the clinch. She's hard to hold down. These things matter, right? So, um, but just not quite enough of that polishing finesse, which, and again, this speaks to both people who go on the ultimate fighter, but also this is we went in the case of Torres who are, you know, closer to the top of the division and just sort of speaks to the, um, evolving nature of this division and divisions. And it's very, of, um, you know, being what it is. So we have to be kind of understanding if there's going to be some limitations to some of the high end talent here. Um, Maganya, I don't really know what to expect from her. I guess we'll see, but, uh, Torres controlled it. She looked good. I would never say she looked bad, but you can just tell there's a degree of separation from what she is and what she needs to be to really make, um, make some noise and be the things that she wants to be in terms of being a title holder or a contender. Uh, Joanne Calderwood cruised. I always mispronounce her name. I apologize sincerely. Uh, say he ham hams, you know, converted kickboxer had some issues previously with her packing, um, has overcome them. But I, you know, I thought she from a size disparity, she had an issue and more to that point on the ground, she had nothing for Calderwood Calderwood. I remember the third round was just, you know, banging on her, um, shorts covered in blood and, and ham just trying to survive. And she did, you know, to her credit, cause she's tough and she's talented, but she was just a bit overmatched there. So for all the hype for ham and all that well-deserved, I suppose, um, you know, Calderwood didn't have the success she needed against Rose, but let's not forget. She's still very much at the top of that division. Um, Heather Joe Clark versus Beck Rawlings. Uh, Heather Joe Clark won the unanimous decision, 29, 28 across the board. Um, Clark looked good the first two rounds. Beck Rawlings kind of turned on the intensity in the third. Was not really impressed overall with the level of uh, uh, technique on display here um, from either lady. Although, I, again, I just truly believe that Clark had a lot of attached But, guys, these trips, man, I'm, I'm really beginning to believe I like trips. And trips are difficult because if you score them or you try to score them and you're in the process of it, you know, Fedor was the king of this. He would reverse somebody in the air. That'd be really problematic, and so he would land on top. But I like the I like a trip because you attach yourself to somebody. So where they go, you go with them. And if you can get the balance right and the gripping right and the spacing right, you're going to do a lot of damage to these guys. You can land. You know, people make this argument about trips. Well, you land and guard. Sometimes, yeah, you know, it's not like a double leg where if you scoop and then turn the corner, you can really just naturally find yourself in side control. Okay, fine. 
but you can find yourself in mount off trips. You can find yourself in all kinds of ways off trips. Um, you just got to really practice them. I think Demin Maya is not a wrestler that anybody expected him to be, but he gets all these guys to the ground because he can get close enough and his trips are just, they're just relentless and they're tight and they're controlled, man. They're really controlled. Um, Clark was able to use, utilize some of those on route to a victory. Uh, not a whole lot to speak of in terms of necessarily a, a, the brightest of futures at this weight class, but enough to probably stay around. Um, both, though, I think are going to have issues against more physical athletes in that weight class. Felice Herrig defeated Lisa Ellis by second-round armbar. Um, you know, uh, Herrig has an interesting story because I called one of her fights years ago in what was called the UWC, the Ultimate Warrior Challenge. It was like a mid-Atlantic promotion based in D.C. Um, they had some shows, uh, I think, through 2009, maybe 2010, but to 2009. And uh, Felice Herrig fought on one of them against a woman named Iman Achel. I'll, I'll remember this quite clearly. Um, and at the time, I distinctly recall Felice Herrig, you know, Iman Achel had, I think, had, this was her pro debut, or maybe this was her second fight. She had very little training experience. I mean, enough that, you know, she was deserving of a pro fight, but that's not a whole lot in the course of someone's life. And Harry was brought in. I remember Harry was, you know, you could tell physically she was a different kind of animal, but she just had really not a lot of ground skills or clinch skills from a defensive standpoint to speak of. And to go from that, what I saw that year, to now where she was shooting brilliant triangle. I mean, truly, truly, I mean this, brilliant triangle attempts off of her back uh, against Lisa uh, Ellis. Um, the matcher, you can say what you want about Felice Harrigan. She's this and she's that, and I don't like her. I'm not asking you to like her as a person. But if you were there that night, she fought to. If I'm not mistaken, she lost to Iman Achel. Let me verify that. Because I remember uh, Iman Achel had this incredible human interest story, um, you know, escaping an arranged marriage and living in a uh, park, literally. Yeah. Yeah, that was her pro debut, too. Wow, I didn't realize that. That was her pro debut for uh, MMA. God, when was that? That was February 21st, 2009. You know, all the credit in the world to Felice Herrick. She has done a uh, hell of a turnaround. A hell of a turnaround. She is a much better technician than I ever thought she could be. And, um, you know, I'm very impressed. That said, how many times did she pull Lisa Ellis's hair to finish a triangle? Um, you know, unfair. It didn't get caught. I don't know if Lisa Ellis has any ability to protest to these commissions who seemingly are uninterested in doing anything about incompetence, but uh, I noticed it not fair. And it did play a role in the arm bar in the end. Uh, so we moved to the main car. Jessica Penny defeated Rhonda Marcos in a great fight. She won via split decision, 28, 29. So one judge for Marcos, 30, 27, and then 29, 28. I don't know about the 30, 27, but what you basically saw was what I thought you would see, which was, um, Penny is, I think what this, I think I, it's not that we didn't know before, but this really was laid bare in this season is that Jessica Penny is an incredibly talented woman and a high ranking straw weight in the UFC. She has some real problems with her stand up. She has a fantastic chin and it's amazing what kind of a shot she can take. But you go back to the uh, Asparza fight on the show, you can go to this random Marcos fight. She'll press forward. She doesn't have a lot of head movement. She stands pretty tall and straight. Um, she gets countered a lot off of her jab against these kind of like quick explosive women, 
especially people like Asparza. Asparza was lighting her up with right hands the whole time. Random Marcos, not quite to that extent, but was able to score on those, making some of these rounds a lot closer than they should be. But I knew once they got to the floor, it was a different level of grappling for Jessica Penny. Um, even when she was, she was able to use her weird frame to put the legs in front and then rotate over and then you know, uh, move to a more advantageous position, but beyond that, you know, securing in the back and holding it and then transitioning positions and really just giving random Marcos hell for a lot of that. She was just a better grappler, even if Marcos might be a better athlete and certainly a better pure wrestler. Uh, although Jessica Penny had one great double that she converted with the trip. So you shoot like you're shooting a double and then you bring the outside leg around and trip as she got that on Marcos, which I thought was slick. So Jessica Penny did great. Random Marcos did great. Um, but I, I, that one, one I knew was if Penny could make this a grappling match, even with some of the other advantages that Marcos might have, this was her fight to lose. But I just want to point out that I think her stand-up really, really needs some work if she wants to win a title. And, you know, she was the Adam Wake queen, so she doesn't have to do anything she doesn't want to do. But I'm just pointing that out. I'm trying to see how long we've gone here. Is there any way to tell? I don't know if there's any way to tell. Well, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, Yancey Medeiros defeated Joe Proctor. Not a whole lot to this. Liver shot hurt him. Yancey taking a few more leg kicks than I was expecting, but uh, once he hit him with the body shot, it was uh, you know able to score the guillotine pretty easily. KJ Nunes versus Darren Crunkshank, uh, Crunkshank, excuse me, uh, was canceled in the second round due to a series of eye pokes where his tear duct was torn if you can believe that um noon's doing better with the pressure than i thought he was up to the end but there's really no conclusion on this one draws Oliveira de- defeated jeremy stevens via unanimous decision 30 27 and then 29 28 on two other judges scorecards uh Oliveira looked really good you know what's incredible to me about Oliveira is that uh, we know Stevens has big power, and he was swinging for the fences. He landed a couple good shots too both on the ground and on his feet um first of all incredible submission defense by Stevens, you know, you go from the Lausanne fight to this fight, you can see his growth in in terms of being great at avoiding submissions. Charles Oliveira, just a wizard at, at putting guys in bad spots, uh, even though he couldn't finish this one particular time. But um, for me, the difference between Oliveira is I'm not necessarily overly impressed with his stand-up at range just yet. But what I am impressed with is his, his ability to regulate distance. Uh, and so he has all kinds of tricks to getting close to you. Some involving punches and strikes, some involving ways in which you are moved against the cage, whatever the case may be. Uh, and so that has brought his submission game to life because he knows that he's not stuck on the outside and going to be desperately lunging at your feet. He, he can find ways to get close. And once he does, he doesn't mind pulling guard or he can easily take your back off an arm drag or something like that. Um, so Oliveira looks great in this fight. And then the main event, Carlos Barza. She is your new uh, women's strawweight champ. She defeated Rose Namajunas. With Rune Kachok in the third round. This was the Carla Esparza show. She never, ever, ever let Rose get off and began to collect momentum. Um, you could say she won the first round. I don't think so. I thought Esparza won the first round. She definitely won the second, and then it was just cruising in the third uh, up to the finish. Uh, Rose never had an answer. Like she was just one step ahead the whole time. If you make someone fight their defense, if you force them, um, if you constantly force an opponent to react to what you're doing, they just never think. Setting up an attacking sequence, I mean, you can land a one big punch, but that's really never what happens. Like, what really happens in most fights? In most fights, it takes time. You have to lay groundwork. You have to sort of build to a position that improves the one position, which improves the next position. And I don't mean on the ground. I mean sort of in a, maybe, maybe in an abstract way. These things, they, you have to build to a point where you can then attack them more robustly. Um, and 
Rose never got that process started. She just never got it started. And because of Sparza never let her. Sparza looking great, super strong double legs, great submission defense, great passing, um, great ability to mix up strikes with passing, great ability to strike after passing, um, never putting herself in danger, never going into bad spots and having to fight out of them. Uh, striking on the feet when she needed to, being proactive on offense. It was just, it was a marriage of you know innate physical ability, someone who was well-trained, and someone who's a veteran. It's just what it was. It was a really veteran, strong performance by Carlos Barza. She deserves that title. You know Whether she can be Claudio Gadelia or Gingerich or anybody else, you know, I guess we'll find out. But um, Carlos Barza, for the way in which she took a title on a huge stage, and just with the authority that she took it, there's a doubt in anyone she's better than Rose Namajunas, at least right now. Um, incredible, incredible performance. She is my fighter of the card. Quickly on World Series of Fighting 16, uh, I'll just mention, if you didn't see it, Lance Palmer uh, beat Rick Glenn to take the uh, featherweight title. You know, remember Glenn took it from Karakanian and now uh, didn't keep it long. Palmer took it. You know, we always talked about the team alpha male thing. You know, look at those guys who've gotten better. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, TJ Dillashaw, chief among them. People forget Lance Palmer's part of that. He's part of that team with Martin Campman over there and Dwayne Ludwig now. And his stand-up looked much, much better, much better. Uh, really powerful always moving in the right direction from a footwork standpoint, from a sort of a ring generalship standpoint as well. Um, so strong, so athletic, um, and just never let Glenn. That, Palmer's pace, if you've ever watched him fight, is a little more measured. I felt like Esparza was just going, 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 going. But be that as it may, um, in the case of, of Palmer and Glenn, Palmer's a little more methodical with the way in which he launches his offense. But um, he launched it enough. Glenn really never had a chance to, to do much with it except respond, and uh, eventually he got blasted out. I think it was in the third or fourth round. Let me just dig that up right now because I don't want to leave you hanging with no information. Uh, let's see. Christ almighty. It's a bit unprepared to me, but what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, so, uh, after the way he finished the choke was amazing too. Hold on, for Palmer, God damn it! Uh, let's see, he got the rear naked choke. If my memory serves me correctly, he had it palm to palm, which Glenn fought off, and so but he still had the arm and was able to squeeze it with one hand, with one arm. Now you're squeezing on top of something like you're grabbing their, you know, their trap or their lat or something. About their lap. You're, you're grabbing their trap or their neck. Uh, official time. Here we go. Lance Palmer defeated Rick Glenn via submission, rear naked choke at in round two. I don't know if we got a time on that or not, I guess. Um, Lance Palmer looked really good. Really, really good. Strong, of course, strong takedowns and strong wrestling, you know. Uh, and then in the main event, of course, um, uh, Husmore Pajaris defeated John Fitch. I'll just say this about it. People keep talk, talking about, oh, well, Alan Belcher laid the blueprint. What does that mean, dude? You're just saying words. Like, stop saying words about, oh, he laid the blueprint. What, what blueprint? What did he land? You know, it's not like the issue with what Pajares is doing is that it's not necessarily overly complicated. It's just a hard time stopping it because he has such an acumen in finding just the tightest of openings to make it work or something that doesn't look like an opening, which then he can then turn into an opening. Um, I am not the biggest expert on Legolock, but I thought the turning point for me is, you know, it was Fitch had defended the first of the series of attempts um, and had both of his feet apart. 
and there's a moment where he lets go from his left hand and kind of tries to sit up and turn. And that's the moment where um, Paul's right leg comes over and then controls the hip. Once he has control of the hips, um, he has basically control of the top of the leg and in many ways through the whole leg. And if you're not putting weight down, he's able, he's able to get the hips over to a direction that he wants. And once he gets that, it's lights out. Did he hold it too long? I would say personally, here's my answer to that. Is it legally defensible? The answer is yes. It is because he stopped basically when the referee told him to kind of sort of. Not ideally, but not so egregiously that you could say, no, he didn't. To me, that's not the point. And it's not the argument. And I also think the argument is, well, he should know better because he he's doing this to other guys who are like him and he's running the careers. I don't know if that has anything to do with it either. The answer, this is price thing, you know. Um, the answer is, for me, being sensitive to someone's tap is a thing that you develop like a skill because you have to. For example, there are classes that we have at just my gym, but this is common at gyms throughout America where you do a marathon roll or for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours, you just roll constantly. That's it. You don't do any technique. You might do a little bit of warm up just to get warm and you just roll. They call them marathon rolls. You're going to roll with the same people a lot. And if you go to a school and you go there for two years, you're with the same people a lot. You can't injure them. You'll get kicked out. They can't come back. Nobody wins. There's a thing where you know when you've got someone. I guess accidents happen, and some guys do go too far, and they have to get kicked out. But most people learn to stop when it's time to stop. There's a certain sensitivity you build in the submission itself, in the submission in a certain position, in the submission in a certain position with a certain person. You sort of know these things. Um, now, he doesn't know John Fitch, and, of course, he's allowed to crank in that way. But I just mean this general idea, like, he, I know for a fact he knows better. Because to get the world-class elite skills he has in passing guard and controlling somebody's hips and scoring a submission and scooping an ankle, all these tiny little millimeters and ounces of details that he has in these particular offensive positions, he has the exact same thing in sensitivity to a tap. This idea that he doesn't, is you can't get one without the other. It's impossible. And I know he has a reputation of injuring a lot of guys in his gym, um, but even then, he, you, you still know better. You just know better. You know when it's time to stop because you have to develop it over time from white to blue to purple to brown to black, when to let go, when not to let go. And his delayed reaction, quite literally, it makes no sense because you, you just don't, you don't, you, when you guys get injured at the highest levels because they refuse to tap uh, of their own admission, not because they couldn't escape somebody who wouldn't let them go. That happens sometimes, of course, but it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. And I don't really think it has much to do with like code of ethics. I think that people know. I think people know also jujitsu doesn't have the thing where it's like only let go when the referee stops you and that, that plays a role, but that's not even a law either. You know, it's not a rule. You don't have to do that. You can let go before that, you know? So anyway, long story short, it's a skill that you develop the sensitivity, not just to when the position works, but you know, when someone really truly, it's not like he did the, the fatal or one tap like versus Verdum. I mean, Fitch was frantically tapping. And I think that general awareness the general knowledge of knowing how to apply submission and when it's following through to the point of success and when to let go. These things all work in tandem with all your other offensive and defensive things that we know to come. The, 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 the tapping itself, when to tap and winning, when, you know, letting go are just the same thing of like, like skills 
as passing art, as taking the back, as hitting arm drags, as learning how to choke, as all, all that stuff. They're all jujitsu skills together. So to say you have this one thing that's like central to rolling, which is central itself to jujitsu. You have this one thing that's not caught up with everything else is, is impossible to me. Anyway, all right. So last but not least, let's get to um, – and by the way, that was at 130 into the first round, so 90 seconds, and do got hosed. Uh, last but not least, UFC on Fox 13. I actually really enjoyed UFC on Fox 13. That was a great event. I'll give it an 8.5. Uh, I won't give it a 9, certainly not a 10, but I don't know if an 8 it will do it the justice. I think that the, we know everyone on Twitter was goofing on how weird it was. Fine, let it be weird. It was weird. It's fun. Like, that's why we watch the sports because it has such a – propensity towards oddity and unusual and the sudden and hard to predict and and there's there's something alluring about that uh this gate did about 1.5 million there was 15,300 in attendance at the i don't know if it's the talking stick resort arena or the u.s airways arena but either way it was in phoenix for the first time uh, ever of course ed herman versus Derek brunson was scrapped on the card due to uh, illness which was fine but um Let's go ahead and break down this card. Ian Enwes will take it on Anthony Burchak. We've already talked a lot about the um, the heel hook. One thing I want to make a note about, everyone was like, oh, my God, we got another Brit who's coming up. It's like I'm not saying Enwesel is not, is not that guy. I'm not saying he's not the guy. But a buddy of mine, uh, I remember when he was like a purple belt or a brown belt jiu-jitsu, he was already uh, you know, um, an extraordinarily uh, high-level or master of sport, whatever you want to call it, in Sambo. And he was saying that once he was allowed to do all the leg locks, or at least many of the leg locks that he had learned in Sambo in jiu-jitsu tournaments, it made him better than guys who were previously better than him overnight. Like, you can't do a lot of things that blue once you go to purple and above, in many cases, or brown and above. A certain amount of techniques are opened up to you. And once he was allowed to use those, he surged past people. Because his argument was like, if you have these other things at the level which other submission sports teach them in jiu-jitsu, um, you know, it, 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 it makes you better than you actually are. And so I'm not saying Inwistle is not that guy, but, you know, relying on heel hooks in the way he does does not tell me he has the ability to beat anybody really actually truly good. But he won via heel hook in the first round in about a minute and four seconds. So credit words do, but let's sort of temper our analysis of it. Uh, Henry Cejudo taking on Dustin Kimura. He beat him from pillar to post, taking 30-27 scorecards across the board. A lot of positive things to say about Henry Cejudo. Boxing looked crisp, didn't take hardly any shots, was moving forward the whole time, barely used his wrestling at all. Had a couple of shots stuffed, I think, later in the fight, but they were half-hearted. Um, did seem a little small for the weight class. That's why he was begging to go back to 125. That's probably a better weight class for him. And can you imagine Henry Cejudo being the top of that weight class and how what a, what a popular attraction he would be? Everyone talks about how do you fix featherweight or featherweight? How do you fix flyweight? How do you fix flyweight? You can't make these guys what they're not. Just get someone who is that guy and let's see if we can get him to the top spot. And Henry Cejudo could be that guy. You know, uh, Mike Skills understands media, speaks fluent Spanish. But to his, to the point about um, you know how he performed, just really sensational. Didn't gas. Um, you know, had good combinations going to the body and the head, not just single shotting, you know, triple, quadruple shotting at times, just giving Dustin Kimura all he can handle. Fantastic performance. Uh, David Michaud defeated Garrett Whiteley via 29, 28, 29, 28, and 30, 27 scorecards. Utterly uh, irrelevant fight. Um, Brian Barberina defeated Joe Ellenberger in the third round. Ellenberger came out strong and basically just faded is the story of this one. Barberina, Showed me a lot of grit, but not a lot of technical prowess, although um, he has some connection to Columbia, so I guess I have a soft spot for him. Um, 
But be that as it may, and I wouldn't say Barbarina looks bad by any stretch of the imagination, but I what I saw more was um, a, a, a really mentally focused and determined fighter able to have enough technical proficiency to weather a storm, but it took him a little longer to put away Joe than I thought it would, and I, I just there was, a, again, certain kind of lethality that just wasn't quite there, although he did finally put him away in that third. Um, Drew Dober defeated Jamie Varner via rear naked choke at 152 in the first round. You guys all saw this. Uh, Varner, like Dylan Andrews or, earlier this year, tried to do a lateral uh, drop and, or a salto, depending on what you want to call it, double overhook salto, and um, and uh, landed on his head, knocked himself unconscious. Dober took him out and then choked him out from there. Uh, Varner retired. I think Varner's one of these guys. This is what I'm talking about when we say we love MMA for craziness. This is what you mean, you know. You got guys like uh, Jamie Varner who got kicked in the balls by Kamal Shalarus and did the worm after his UFC debut and beat Razor Rob and, and, and won the WEC title and had crazy fights with Donald Cerrone and, and Benson Henderson too and um, had wars with Abel Trujillo and, and it goes on and on and on and on. Like, he had a crazy up and down wild career, but was fun the whole time. He's getting out still relatively young age. Guys would kill to have careers like Jamie Varner's, and uh, uh, he should be very proud. Ben Saunders defeated Joe Riggs uh, via some sort of weird neck injury. Joe Riggs just looks like he cannot compete physically because of what it's the, the game has done to him. He's always been injury prone to begin with, um, and he seems to be unlucky as well. And that's not a really a, a great combination for someone in their 30s at this point. Um, you know, I would never want to take away an opportunity from a guy, but UFC has to really evaluate whether or not it's worth keeping him on the roster. Ben Saunders did what he could, but there's just not a lot to evaluate here. That fight was stopped at 57 seconds into the first. John Moraga defeated Willie Gates uh, at 406 of the third round. Bit of a controversy because uh, Moraga thought that he'd been hit low, was talking to the ref. Ref apparently told Moraga to keep going. Moraga didn't realize it, but Gates did, so Gates attacked him. Some thought it was sucker punching. Probably not. Uh, Moraga says he actually didn't hear, uh, but Gates heard. In any event, uh, it didn't matter in the end because Moraga was able to put him away. Moraga's incredible, you know. Uh, I really appreciate some of the things he can do. He hit that John Jones special, which is the you know front like chancery uh, front headlock, and then you use an inside trip. Did that against the fence with Gates, and from there, um, Gates had nothing for him. Was able to take his back and choke him out. He's got skills everywhere. He's super tough. Um, he's mentally very focused. Only guys like Demetrius Johnson have ever took him to a spot where you can see him mentally begin to crack. Everyone else, good luck breaking that guy because you're going to need it. Uh, John Moraga has um, a, 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 a sincere amount of um, uh, grit when he competes so, and, and technical prowess to match it. Very fun guy to watch. We'll see where he can go in the division. Uh, Joanna Jinjuric defeated Claudia Gadelia. I scored it for Gadelia. Um, obviously, she got dropped in the first round with a brilliant uppercut so you know you give that one to gingeric but uh i thought Adelia won you know it was a close fight but she was again because she she, again who was forcing who to react to the other's offense the majority of that time that's going to be Gadelia. and so for me i thought she should have won that um by no means is she somehow now ruined in the division she's got plenty of time to get another title shot and i'm sure she will given how talented of a competitor that she is gingeric uh uppercut was great in the first and she landed throughout but she she's still got to find ways to get people off of her part of takedown defense is stopping the takedown and the other part of takedown defense is stopping the takedown and creating separation she had some problems with that uh matt mitry undefeated gabriel gonzaga at 159 to the first round 
Gonzaga just looked slow and plotting and had a lot of difficulty um, doing anything. Mitrion light on his feet, pumping his jab. Uh, he made a great point that he fights at range better. You know, he knows how to use his length better. I think that's true. Uh, great win for him. Great rebound for him. And a week where Brendan Schaub's in the news uh, because of perceived damage issues that he's taken. You go back and you think that, you know, wow, Schaub went, ran over Mitrion. But Mitrion, uh, maybe getting a second wind in his career, uh, looked really good. Alistair Overeem defeated Stefan Struve into the first round. Uh, TKO, 413. Uh, Overeem looked good, but I got. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, what? 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 What about his performance tells you that things you may have been worried about before are not valid? Nothing. He never took a big shot, so you don't know if he's got any, you know, damage issues that are are still lingering. Or there's no reason to speculate that he doesn't. Quite honestly, um, and he took uh, Struve down, and then was able to, you know, uh, pound him out on top. You know, Overeem has had. Tremendous ground and pound for a long time. That's not new either. And Struve, you know, Struve had a long time off, had a health scare, thought his career was over, probably was a financial burden, a time burden, a distraction burden. What did we really expect him to do in his UFC return against a guy like Alistair Overeem on a main card on national TV? You're just not, you're going to get a suboptimal performance. There's no doubt about it. And, and that's what you saw. But like, it was a good win for Overeem. And he looked, again, Overeem's ability is not the question here. We know how good he is. We know the things he can do. We know what kind of, uh, from an offensive standpoint, what a threat he is. You know, and everyone talks about oh, his punching power and this and that. And that's fine, dude. Alistair Overeem, I you haven't seen him in a while, but when he puts him on, my man's got some of the best guillotines in the game, dude. That's not. I, I'll put. I'll put. I'll, I will put Alistair Overeem's guillotines up against any world champion in MMA from jiu-jitsu. Fact, his guillotines are ferocious. You don't see them a whole lot because they're harder to land. He doesn't go for them as much, but. Um, if you really wanted to and prioritized it, look out. I guarantee you'd see it. So all these things are real. Like he's still good at all these things, but we didn't see any of the liabilities touched on again in this fight. And so therefore I think he's able to continue his career and that's fine. He should be able to, but if you had concerns about him, this fight doesn't assuage them. Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos just beating the bejesus out of Nate Diaz. 30-26, 30-26, 30-27, a unanimous decision. Diaz alluding to after the fact that he had injuries that um, had prevented him from fighting and obviously had been had a contentious week complaining all week about the Reebok deal and CM Punk and whatever. Um, we'll get to those things in the live chat. In terms of the technical perspective, how do you not love Rafael Dos Anjos? How do you not – how do you not – just admire what he's become. For me, he's the fighter of the card. Who was the best fighter on that card? Uh, who had the best performance on that card? Rafael Dos Anjos for me, a million miles. I just thought in terms of the way who he was fighting, the way in which he was beating him, the completeness, the suite of talent, all the different things he was able to do. He could wrestle. He could take back. He could pass. He could avoid subs. He could, uh, uh, you know, um, all different kinds of um, ground and pound and different kinds of transition phases and the the ferocity of the leg kicks. And he never gets tired. And he can constantly push the pace. Rafael Dos Anjos is nasty. He is super, super nasty. He deserves a title shot because of the Habib Nurmagomedov. Uh, opportunity won't make it, you know, it just doesn't work from a calendar perspective. But Rafael Dos Anjos, that is the fighter of that card. No doubt about it. He is the FOTC 100%. He is such an impressive guy. A guy who had difficulty dealing with Jeremy Stevens, um, you know, in a different weight class and a different time. And to see what he is today is just truly remarkable. A guy who, who, uh, 
you know, again, reminds me very much of Kenny Florin, one of these guys who's going to at least get a title shot because he committed himself to a craft to the point where he was able to maximize his ability. A lot of fighters never reach that. And then in the main event, Junior Dos Santos taking on Stipe Miocic. Very close fight, but Junior won 48-47, 49-46, 49-46. Some complaints about Joe Rogan and and Mike Goldberg in terms of how they swayed the commentary Um, didn't affect me too much. I had it 48-47 for... Dos Santos, if you had a 48-47 for Stipe, I have no issue with that. Again, another very, very close fight where um, calling it a robbery is just totally ridiculous. Hard rounds to judge. A couple of takeaways in this fight. I thought it was kind of funny that Dos Dos Santos was throwing big power punches, none of them landing, so the ones he was having to rely on were the shorter, crisper, busier shots but didn't have as much power. By contrast... um, Miocic wasn't as active, but was able to land big, big bombs a lot, big hard punches, you know, um, trajectory uh, altering punches. Um, but it wasn't enough. He, he kind of faded in those later rounds. Dos Santos, Jesus, yes, Dos Santos uh, using veteran experience to maintain pressure, maintaining the attack, knowing that he had to just sort of stay busy, stay in his face, and he'd be able to do a whole lot. And he was so tremendous takedown defense. Uh, Miocic has a just a, an absurd chin, incredible chin. So I uh, was kind of blown away by that. But again, the takeaway here is, one, Miocic is a real deal contender, at least. I think if not now, then give him a year, he'll be even better. Um, someone who's much better than we thought he was, can really do it all, can take a hell of a shot, doesn't need to, that often can punch very hard, um, a much more athletic credit, much quicker than he's given credit. Great takedowns. Didn't seem so much in this fight, but you know, I think from a division-wide standpoint, you would grade his takedowns closer to the top. But of course, what's the major takeaway here is the, is the damage. The big question we had going in was, what was subtracted from Junior Dos Santos from those two Cain Velasquez fights? I know we fought him three times, but there's only two that were bloody and awful. Seems to be a lot. I think he's a little bit slower. Does, his face just does not respond to damage very well. Um, I think his ability to take a shot from a sort of a structural uh, standpoint has been compromised to some degree as well. He just can't, you can't get chewed through the ringer that many times and have the same kind of um, ability to, to, from a superficial and a structural uh, standpoint, take a shot. I think he's been badly compromised in that way. Um, if he never fought again, I wouldn't be opposed to it. It may sound like a crazy thing to say, but it's true. I don't really know how you can come back from that. Those are two world-class, and I mean this, two world-class beatings he took, and last night was pretty damn close if it wasn't a third. And there's just, uh, if they don't give him a title shot and he's fighting guys he's much better than, I have less concerns about it, but I don't know that Dos Santos is comfortable in that position. I think he still fancies himself um, a guy who deserves a title and a title shot, but that leaves him very few options in terms of guys he can face and guys who won't do that to him. And so that is very, very troubling. And what you do with Dos Santos is going to be a difficult thing to figure out. Um, so that's it. That's this podcast. I probably went way too long. I didn't mean to. Uh, I'm actually, if you watch this live, congratulations. Good for you. But I'm actually going to make this private until uh, Monday morning. This has been episode three of the Monday Morning Analyst. I'm on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. I'm on Facebook at uh what am I on? i'm not facebook i'm on twitter at sbn luke thomas i'm on email at luke.thomas at sbnation.com thank you for watching see you guys this week